welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. The redemptive names of God communicate something to us of how God is actually meeting our basic human needs. We all have human needs the world over. doesn't matter... Um, whether we're living in the east or the west, whether we're affluent in an affluent country or not so affluent country, our needs are essentially the same. And the study of the compound names of God will show how God is, re- is redeeming humanity at every level. And so I want to have a look a little bit more a bit later about why that needs to happen. So, so far we've had a look at Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. We've had a look at Jehovah Ra, the Lord our shepherd who directs and guides our life. And today... I want to have a look at the term Jehovah Shammah and what that means. So if you turn in your Bibles to the very last chapter, or look on the screen, but in the very last chapter of Ezekiel, we find this term. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he was a man who found himself living in Babylon. He was um, one of the exiles, one of the Israelite exiles. He wasn't living in Jerusalem, but he was prophesying about Jerusalem and encouraging and challenging the people of God about their lifestyle. God was revealing some things to him about what was happening in the present and what was going to happen in the future. And near the start of the book of Ezekiel, we see that the presence or the glory of God departs from the temple in Jerusalem. And then we see a whole bunch of uh, stuff that Ezekiel reveals about God's call to his people to repent and all that sort of thing and what's going to happen to them and to the surrounding nations. But then the book of Ezekiel finishes with a description of a future and coming kingdom and a glorious kingdom. And the very last words in this book of Ezekiel are this. In the last verse, it says, The name of the city, the city that's just been described, from that time on will be, the Lord is there. And that is in the Hebrew, Jehovah Shammah. So that's where we get this term from. And I want to have a look at that today because in isolation, if you're reading through that, you could very easily just skip over that. The Lord is there. Okay, well, at some time, in some place, at some point, to some people, God was or is going to be there. And that would, I think, be to miss the massive um, amount of truth and awesome truth at that that is wrapped up in that very small name or statement, the Lord is there. Because it's not really just a name given for a certain time and place on this planet that relates to a certain few people, but it has awesome implications for all in the world. And for all who live in it. When you hear that statement, the Lord is there, I don't know about you, but for me, I like to, I always get questions come to mind. So the first thing I want to know is, what, what do you mean by there? <laughs> the Lord is there. I mean, I'm a dad, and I've had a dad, and, and many people have dads, and some dads are there, but they're not necessarily there. I mean, as a dad, I've been there and not there. Do you know what I'm saying? You can be there and be of no use to your kids. If you're doing something else and you're not engaged with them, not focused, they can be talking away and wanting your attention. You can just be there in body, but no actual use to your kids because you're just not there emotionally or in spirit. So I want to look at what it means for God to be there this morning. But I also want to know where is he there? Where is he there? I think that's important as well. So I'm going to try and address those two questions as I just sort of unfold a few things this morning. And the first thing I want to have a look at then is the Lord is there in the world at large. Okay, the world is there in the world at large. One of the, for those that are Christian, you probably have heard at some point in time 
the term omnipresent. Okay, for those who have done any level of study of theology or doctrine at all, you've come across this term. And even if you haven't, most people have an inkling that something about God is that he's everywhere. And that's all that term means, that God is everywhere. He doesn't have spatial limitations. He's in all places at all time, and yet he somehow manages to act differently in different places at different times. There's no way we can go to escape the presence of God. And Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, emphasise that fact. I'm going to read them to you now. Psalm 139, verse 7 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise up on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the earth, or sorry, of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 23 to 24 says, Am I a God nearby and not a God far away? And he goes on a little bit later and says, Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? And there are many, many, many scriptures that re-emphasize the fact that God is there in all places at all times. And I love this idea that you know, God says, am I a God who's far away? Because that was the concept some people had. Particularly in the Old Testament, we see you know, some of the people that attacked Israel. I remember one particular instance where they said that they attacked Israel, they got defeated on the, on the plains, and so they, well, maybe, maybe their God's a God of the plains, so maybe if we attack them in the hills, we'll do better. Because their concept of God was very small. It's very, you know, isolation. It's like, we've got our God, and he looks after our people. He lives in our valley or our particular part of the world. And in other parts of the world, there's other gods. And, and really, the reason for that is that they weren't serving the one true God who's everywhere. They were serving demonic spirits that are indeed bound to geographical locations and aren't omnipresent like God. So God created the whole world as a backdrop for his relationship, essentially, with man. Human history begins with a man, Adam, being able to just walk in the cool of the evening with God in the most beautiful botanic garden the world has ever seen. God created everything in all its awesomeness and majesty and, and just splendor of you know, just the wonderful natural world that we see about us. But then God, it says, planted a garden. And that fact amazes me. I mean, I, I marvel at landscapers who can just take ordinary shrubs and plants and rocks and they can do something wonderful. Well, imagine what God's garden would have looked like. So God has set up this wonderful situation, this scenario with which to have relationship and create a society where he is living with his people. And that's how the world starts. But it didn't last that way for too long. We see that Satan comes in, he deceives Adam into rejecting God's lordship for his life and subjects Adam instead to his lordship. At that point, things changed dramatically. The harmony between God and man that was there was shattered. It's interesting, by the way, that God had, man had a relationship with God before he had a relationship with a woman or any other man for that matter. So man was intended to have a relationship with God first and from that with people. So this relationship was shattered and indeed brokenness came into our world at every level. You think about it, there's not one level that has not been affected by the entrance of sin into the world. Sin is like a computer virus. It's not always as obvious in some computers as others. But it always causes frustration. A computer's always going to come unstable and unreliable at some level. Sometimes it's really obvious. Sometimes it's a black screen of death and nothing else happens. <laughs> Other times you think your computer's doing the right thing. But if you look carefully at your spreadsheets, all your numbers don't actually add up. And so it's nonetheless, it's unstable, it's unreliable. And our lives and this world in which we live has become unstable and unreliable. It is no longer 
working according to the pattern that God determined from the beginning. It's obvious in several areas. Firstly, physically. We were created to live with God forever, but God had to step in and say, no, that we can't have you living in a sinful state forever. Therefore, man, as a result of his sin, will die. And our body from that moment was subject to the aging process, and there was a limit put on how long we could stay on this planet. So death came into the world. Spiritually, we see that separation came. We see that deceptiveness came and blindness came spiritually. We're no longer able to see and relate to God the way that we we become subject to deception and spiritual blindness. There's a distance between man and God. It's the origin of that, what's been called the God-shaped hole, the vacuum inside that nothing else can fill. It doesn't matter how many relationships you have. It doesn't matter how far you get climbing up the corporate ladder. It doesn't matter how rich or famous you become. Human history bears out the fact that nothing apart from a relationship with God will satisfy. There's always something left in the middle of man that cannot be filled apart from God. That started back then. Emotionally, we see this man was shattered, broken. Prior to that point, there was total contentment. There was peace. There was joy. There was all the things that come from living in a place like that with a person like God. Suddenly, guilt comes into the world. We see man and woman covering themselves up because they suddenly feel ashamed of their nakedness. They suddenly feel that something is wrong. And with that comes all the frustration that we've experienced ever since. Relationally, we see straight away there's conflict starts. We've got the blame game starting. We've got the justification happening between Adam and Eve. And this goes on and on and on throughout history. All of these things right from the start. We see the first murder followed very shortly after the first sin. Morally, we are in bondage to sin. We can't do the good that we want to do anymore. Some of us have an inkling, some a greater inkling than others, depending on how much this sin virus has affected our lives, but none of us is able to live up to our own moral standards, never mind the standards of God. None of us lives the life that we want to live. Environmentally, the world is in bondage to decay. The whole world is winding down. The whole world is slowing down and it's groaning and straining under this bondage of sin and death. This virus of sin has affected every part of this world in which we live. And so we see this world of chaos, this world in a downward spiral that is after generation, after generation, after generation become more disconnected from God, more driven and misguided in its priorities, more destructive in its desires and it's more disconnected in terms of some purpose and meaning in life, less satisfaction and those that are striving for purpose and meaning and satisfaction and security and all those things are often doing it at the expense of others. So that's the state of the world that God had to withdraw himself from to some level when Adam sinned. God, for Adam's sake, had to withdraw from Adam's presence because a holy God and a sinful man cannot live together. There's only one outcome when that happens, and it's death and destruction. So God withdraws, but despite all this, the Bible teaches that God is still there. He's withdrawn his glory and his manifest presence from man, but it doesn't mean that he's disinterested. It doesn't mean he's just gone to the other side of the universe and started something else, given up on Project Earth. God is still there. He's not left us without hope. 
In the midst of a world with false religion and wars and ignorance and spiritual apathy, God is there. How is he there? He's there sustaining creation. The Bible says that um, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it talks about the fact that Jesus is sustaining all things by his word. It says he holds all things together in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. So God is sustaining this creation. While it is winding down, while it is, he's still holding it together. This world will last as long as it needs to. Regardless and irrespective of, of the concerns of the greenies, and I think they, they should be concerned us all, to be honest, because we were given this earth as, to look after and steward well. But nonetheless, we're not going to hit by a, get hit by a comet, or the sun's not going to burn out, or you know, we're not going to use up all our oxygen or anything like that until God has finished with this earth. God will sustain this earth until he returns. God provides all that we need for life. Again, despite the wickedness of people collectively, despite the fact that some you know, do better than others and some are worse than others, God doesn't distinguish. God provides for all. The Bible tells in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, that the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, sun is, is essential for life. Without the sun, you can't sustain life. But there are so many other things that are essential for our life as well. Oxygen and rain and all these sorts of things. Food. God provides enough food on this planet for every person. God provides enough building material. Now, what we've done with it, you know, people blame God often. Say, if God's a God of love, how come this, how come that? The reality is, much of what people blame God for is actually man's problem. It's man's greed, man's wickedness, man's selfishness that comes in. There's enough food on this planet for every person to eat well every day. And yet many people starve and die because we're not stewarding well. God is there providing for our needs. God is there directing the course of history. Circumstances. You know, he does a whole lot of ways. Sometimes he intervenes in very, very obvious and significant ways in terms of blessing. We see that God intervened in history in the past with Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. And there were some very amazing miracles that were done. Some very obvious evidences of his desire to bless this country, this nation, Israel. Excuse me. So God can bless. God can show his favour and do good things to people whom he wants to do good things for. The other side of it is God can step in and totally decimate those who are doing bad things and those who are against those that he's wanting to do good things for. And again, we see many times God's enemies absolutely smashed to smithereens because of God's supernatural intervention in human history. But outside of that, God is always moving through circumstances, often not so obvious as those, but he's always working through circumstances and through the way he reveals himself to people across the face of the earth. God is allowing this thing to happen and not allowing that thing to happen. He's setting limits in place. He's limiting wickedness. Do you not think if the devil could have, he would have already destroyed the planet? Do you not think if mankind could have, he would have already destroyed himself in his own wickedness or stupidity? God is setting limits. If you want to see how bad the devil is, you know, it astounds me when you see in the book of Job, we see God sort of boasting about Job and the devil has a quip back and says, well, he's only doing that because you look after him so well. And God says, no, I believe he'll look after, he'll worship me anyway. And so Job says, well, I'm going to, you know, what about if you strike him down? Or, you know, what about if you punish it? What if you, sorry, bring bad things into his life? And so God says, okay, you can do what you like with him, 
but you can't kill him. Or don't touch the man himself. Within one day, Job loses everything. The devil given, take, with the limits taken, the normal limits that God has in this planet, the devil takes them off Job's life and in one day, he loses all his cattle, he loses everything basically, and he loses his entire family. Like in less than 24, that is, that's how much the, hate, the devil hates this world. That is much, how much the devil hates the righteous. You and I, if, if the devil was left unfettered, we probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't get out of bed. <laughs> because the devil has a measure of power and he has a measure of influence. But God is restraining him because we have his favour upon us. God is there in restraining, and, as I've said, but he's also there in not treating us as our sins deserve. But he's patiently outworking a plan of reconciliation. In other words, we were, we were separated from God. We need to be reconciled to God. God is working a plan out throughout history. And so I think when you look at those things, that we would do well to acknowledge them and remember that God owes us nothing. The things I've mentioned, God does not owe us. And it frustrates me, possibly as it frustrates you, when people shake their fist at God, as I've said before. And what about God this? And what about God that? And God's not just. And God doesn't understand. And God doesn't care. I think those things suggest that God does. And we look elsewhere before we start laying the blame with God. So God is there in the world. Just in a general sense, God is there. Sustaining, leading, guiding, restraining, etc., etc. But there's another way in which God is there. And the second way in which God is there is that God is there with his people. So God's there generally for everyone. Whether they, whether they believe in God or not, whether they're wicked or whether they're just doing okay, God is there in the world for everyone. But God is there in a special way with his people. That brings with it increased privilege and increased responsibilities. The Bible is, among other things, a, a record of God's dealing with mankind. It really just teaches us about how God is there regarding his people. Now this is an, is an, an exhaustive book of everything that God has ever son, said or done throughout human history, but it is the most accurate and most relevant book when it comes to God. It's the place that we need to start. And this talks about God's, talks about how man was separated from God, but then it gradually unfolds over time God's plan to restore man back to God. And in time, we see that God breaks into people's lives and people like Abraham and people like Noah and people like Moses, God breaks into people's lives in order that he may reveal his plans and purposes to his people. And ultimately, he chose a people, Israel, Abraham's descendants, to demonstrate how God wants to treat his people and to be an example of what living under God's blessing and favour can be like. Again, it's a place of privilege, but with that privilege came responsibilities. And so if they did the right thing, the nation of Israel was blessed. If they did the wrong thing, the nation of Israel was punished because as any good father does. Okay, so God set an example and showed us what it was like when he's there with his people. Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 says, The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Again, we see that reiterated in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. He, is, he will never leave us or forsake us. So God is there with his people. In three different ways, I think God is there with his people. Firstly, as I've kind of alluded to already, he's there for his people. Wherever God goes, wherever we go, sorry, God is there. Tone's already 
kind of stolen my thunder a little bit in this point this morning, but it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. It doesn't matter whether we're on the mountaintop with God or whether we're in a jail, we're with God. We see that Israel was with God whether they were in the promised land or whether they were exiled into some place that was actually a place of punishment and the fulfillment of the curses of God on their life. God was still there, revealing his purposes to his people. He was there for his people. He still had a heart for his people who were no doubt confused and worried and have we got a future? Will we ever get out of this? Has God forgotten us? Will he do something else? And the prophets continue to speak because God is there for his people. Sometimes he does spectacularly deliver. Sometimes it looks like your back's to the wall, you're going to die, and God moves in and saves you miraculously. And we, again, the Bible is full of account after account of that sort of deliverance. But sometimes God just takes us through a circumstance. And again, it's all for the good. He is working all things together for good. Sometimes he saves us because he knows that the best outcome will come if he saves us. But sometimes he, does it, he knows that the best outcome will be if he takes us through something because he's about growing kids. He wants us to mature and develop and become more like him. And he knows if he just lets us off and helps us out, <clears throat> maybe we won't grow like we need to. Is this making sense? Cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> So sometimes he delivers, sometimes he takes us through, and sometimes he even just takes us home. You know, the amazing thing about any one of those outcomes is no one who knows God is ever disappointed with any one of those things that he does. For the person who knows God and they get delivered, the result is praise and thanks. Because they've seen their God at work in their life. For the person who doesn't get delivered but has to go through something tough, the result, again, praise and thanks because we've become more like him. For the person who goes straight into his presence, I don't even think I need to say anything. So God is there for his people. But there's also a sense in which he's now there in his people. And again, we've just done a whole series on the Holy Spirit, the forgotten God. And so I would point you back to have a listen to those MP3s if you don't get what I'm coming from here. But essentially, in the Old Testament, they had a temple where God's presence dwelt. And so you wanted to go and offer sacrifices to God, you went offered at the temple. And so the, the place where God's presence was most powerfully seen and felt and experienced on the planet was in the temple of God. The New Testament is totally different. The place now where God's presence is most powerfully and fearfully and wonderfully felt is in his people. He comes and lives in his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Do you not know that you yourselves, assuming you're a Christian, assuming you're a believer in God, are God's temple? And together, corporately, we are God's temple. And that God's spirit lives within you. And so the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. He is there in our lives, present, in order that he might empower us, to live the life that God's calling us and to direct us in the course of that life. So God is there for us. He will deliver us or take us through or take us home. But he's there in us as well. But even probably more importantly than that, or the reason for all that, is that he might be there through us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, 
And we've already heard this this morning, I think it says, but we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God himself were making his appeal through us. We are temples of God's spirit and therefore wherever we go, God's spirit goes, God's presence, God is there. When our girls went to India just recently, God was there. Now the reality is God was already there because he's everywhere. So he's there, generally speaking. But he's also there specifically because they went to meet other Christians. And so he was already there through other Christians. But the reality is he was there in a special way through Judy and Sam and Ashari and all the others that went because they took their temple and, and God's expression, the expression of God through them into India. So they were a blessing there. God wants to take us to those who have never heard. God wants to take us to those who have never experienced it. God wants to take us to those who are spiritually deceived or blind and reveal what Jesus is really like. So God is there, generally speaking. People are going to be, at the end of the day, the person who does not know God will be condemned because of what they should have known about God, just because of creation. Creation speaks of a God. Irrespective of some of the other stuff that's out there about evolution, that stuff does not hold water if you look at it properly. People will stand condemned. People will stand further condemned because of the grace with which God is operating into this world. He is not, as I said before, treating us as sin, but he is patient. He's holding off. And that holding off is supposed to give us an opportunity to come to our senses and repent and turn back to God. For most people, it seems, that holding off is only going to cause them further condemnation because they're going to run more wild, they're going to be more stupid, they're going to be more rebellious, and so on and so forth. But God's intention is not that that would happen. God's intention that we would come to our senses. So God needs us to be in the world and taking his presence in a tangible, understandable way into people's lives who do not understand God, people who have got misconceptions about God, people who have got issues with God, people who have been burnt by religion, people who have had parents that were hypocrites, or whatever the case may be, God is wanting to do away with all that stuff through a, a genuine encounter with the real living God through his people. And not just one or two here, but just by encounter after encounter after encounter, people consistently portray a consistent image of God. Is this making sense? Yeah, Excellent. <clears throat> so God is there for his people. He's there in his people. He wants to be there through his people. And the third thing that I want to say about the Lord being there is that the Lord is there in eternity. The Lord is there in eternity. One of the frustrating things about living in this age is the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, that we see in part and we know in part. It's kind of back in those days, it says, it's like looking in a mirror dimly. It's like, you know, they used to have like polished brass or whatever, so you look into it and you wouldn't really see the detail. It's kind of frustrating to look at because it gives you enough just to be a teaser. But it doesn't really show you where the zits are. <laughs> we like that now. There are things about God that we have a little bit of an inkling about, but we cannot fully understand. There are things about eternity that we've got a slight idea about, but we cannot fully understand. It's frustrating to live in this life. I don't know about you, but I find that frustrating. I want to know God more. I want to know more about what's ahead. Even as amazing as the encounters might be, you know, and like I said, there's 
wonderful things recorded in here. There's amazing stuff on YouTube and written in books about people and their experience with God, but none of that. It's all just, it's, it's all just temporal. It's all just, sorry, it's all just a shadow. It's all just blurry. There's no detail in it. But one day, one day, be it when God doesn't take us through, he just takes us straight home. Or be it when Jesus comes back, because that's the other thing the Bible says about Jesus. He didn't just go back into heaven, but he's coming back to earth. One day, we're going to see him face to face. And we're going to understand what this awesome God is really like. We're not going to feel sorry for him. We're not going to... It's going to probably be nothing like what we think. You know, Tony spoke about the little shepherd image of Jesus last. We're going to realise that is totally wrong. And there's going to be so many other things that are going to just die in us about what we think about God. He is not weak. He is not insipid. He is not effeminate. He's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it doesn't matter what level of technology mankind is at. They will not be able to shoot him down. <laughs> they will not be able to conduct a terrorist plot or campaign against him. It's just, it's just going to be over. It's going to be finished, done. And God will be back, ruling and reigning. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 4, quickly turn there. There's a lot about Revelation that you won't get, and I don't get, and most people don't get. In fact, probably all people don't get, but uh, some think they've got it, or tell you they've got it. But I think the last bit's easy to get. There's some, still some things that people debate over, but essentially, I think we can pretty much take this as read. So chapter 21, and I'll start from verse 1. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So it doesn't matter how bad this place gets. It doesn't matter how polluted the rivers get. It doesn't matter how many trees get cut down. None of that really matters. It doesn't matter if there's no ozone layer. It doesn't a new heaven and a new earth. And there was no longer any sea. I know some of the surfers really struggle with that one. <laughs> and I guess the scuba divers. And <clears throat> I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now... The dwelling of God is with men. God is there. And he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And it goes on, just, yeah, you can get a little bit excited about that. I think it's worthy. goes on and reveals a few other things, but can you just imagine, I mean, what is it that, that is a pain in your life right now? What is it that's, that's frustrating you? What is it that's ticking you? What is it that's robbing you of life right now? Is it a gnawing sense of injustice? You're locked in a battle with someone and you, you, there's no one to arbitrate. You can't trust the legal system. You can't trust someone to step in the middle and be truly unbiased. Maybe it's your fear of the future. Maybe you're worried. I can't seem to earn enough money. 
What's going to happen? You know, if the job, what if, what am, how am I going to provide for my kids in the future? All these things. There are so many things that people worry about. There's a sense of condemnation that many people live under. There's uncertainty. There's a fear of being, there's this sense of unworthiness. All of this stuff. Comparison. I'm not as good as this person. I'm not as good as that person. The fear of wicked people doing wicked things. All of those things are going to be utterly and completely done away with when God is there. In the most real and tangible way. You know, some people think of heaven as it's all ethereal, it's all sort of cloudy and harpy and all that sort of stuff. And, and they think, well, I'm not really into harps. So if I go to hell, that'll be okay. <laughs> Seriously, most, some, most people think that way. They think, you know, who, sounds boring standing around a cloud all day and forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And ever. It would be boring because that's not what heaven, there's a new heaven and a new earth. Whatever there is in this planet that is good is a shadow of what God intended in the beginning. God didn't intend heaven to be wispy and, and kind of like a hologram. This earth is like the hologram compared to the new heaven and the new earth. When Jesus came on the planet, he walked through a wall, but he ate fish. What I mean by that is when he came back in his resurrection body, he walked through a wall. This earth was like a hologram to Jesus. It's a real kingdom. God is coming to live with his people. Having dealt with all the shortcomings, all of our sin, all death, everything else that is a shortcoming of this, this current physical state, God will be present in his fullness. I'm amazed at the, the radiance of God. You go on and read it, and it says that there's going to be no sun because God himself is radiant. We are unable in this human body to look upon God because our eyes would just shrivel up, look like little dried peas or something in our head because you know, our skin would probably fry. I mean, I, probably not because God's probably able to emanate light that doesn't do that, but you know. <laughs> what I'm saying is that all the stuff that we do on this planet is flawed. So you know, if we try and create you know, something that's going to create energy and all that. So we end up with, with radiation burns and stuff because we do not have all wisdom and all intelligence. So that's a, but whatever God's going to allow us to establish and create and do in the new life, it's going to be perfect. There's going to be the rejoicing at the presence of God himself in all his glory, all his splendor, all his beauty. There's going to be, a, you know, even amongst people, there's going to be a sense of unity that we've never understood before, even the, the most intimate moment between a husband and a wife will pale into insignificance when compared to every relationship in heaven. Because there'll be nothing holding us back. There'll be nothing that we're ashamed of, nothing that we're worried about. As God, God's perfect unity in the Trinity, I believe that's going to be part of our inheritance in heaven. And you know the best thing, or one of the amazing things is going to be that everything that we've suffered Anything that we've endured, we're suddenly going to have a realisation that, hey, it was only light. And it was only momentary, that trouble I had to go through, that suffering I had to endure. And actually, it did achieve an eternal glory. And all of those things are as nothing compared to what I'm achieving now. Come on. 
are you, are you getting this? I, I, to be honest, I, I'm so totally intimidated to talk about this because I, I don't get it. But what I do get excites me. I, I wish I could articulate a little bit more. <laughs> I wish I was better. I wish I had a better imagination. I wish I could kind of tease out more. But what I, what I see, when I begin to think about the things that suck in this world, and, and I understand that God is dealing with those things, we'll take them, everything, I'm talking every little thing in your life that is a source of frustration, it's a result of man's rebellion against God. God is going to totally reverse that trend and everything that you could put a, a finger to and identify in your life as a source of fear, of guilt, of shame, of misunderstanding, of whatever will be dealt with at that moment. And we will see him face to face and we'll be totally accepted. We won't be worried about, oh, am I accepted? We will feel totally accepted. The greatest, one of the greatest truths in the Bible, therefore, is that God is there. Regardless of how we feel, or what we've done, God is there. He's there to help. He's there to strengthen. He's there to encourage. He's there to purify. He's there to reveal himself. But he is there. For those of us that know God, the revelation that he's always there, I think, should outwork itself in a few things. I don't know about you, but I think the revelation that God is there could cause us to live a holy life. I think it could fill us with confidence. I think it could spark a little bit of joy and a little bit of peace in our lives. And that's all that God intends. For us just to be real and recognize that he is there and allow that truth to outwork. Because you know, if you're struggling with sin in any area and you realize God's there, that he's with you, he's looking. You wouldn't do it if your mother was there. Maybe we live in a world today where some people would and do, but the reality is, let's just get a greater revelation of the fact that God is there. I think it will restrain us and it will push us forward into greater things. Those who know their God, the Bible says, will do exploits. For those who don't know God, the awesome fact is, He's there, but there for you actually means here, right now. And you're able to respond to Him. Now, again, I, I thoroughly endorse that people would. And Tony, perhaps you want to get ready to come up and our worship team could come up. Because I'm just closing now. But I thoroughly endorse people who ask questions and don't just jump in and make a decision that they forget about five minutes later. But the reality is God is there and he's been calling you and he's been ordering circumstances in your life to get you here. That you can hear a message like this. And, and the reality is for most of you, it's not the message you've heard for the first time. You've heard many messages about God's goodness and there's something that's stirring inside your lives saying, this is real and this is what I want. Well, I want to encourage you to not just ignore that, that sense that God is calling you in your lives. I encourage you, yes, to weigh it up. You won't, you'll never know all that you need to know though to become a Christian. You'll never have enough answers to become a Christian. There's a point at which you've just got to put your foot in the water, so to speak, and actually entrust yourself to God and you will grow in a relationship with Him. But having said that, it's good to weigh up the cost because Jesus is demanding everything of you. That's actually a gain. It's not a loss. Because when you come into His presence, you become His property and He becomes responsible for you and towards you. And so I'd rather live under God's leading and guidance and protection and provision than under what I can do for myself. So I want to put that out there and 
encourage you, if you do not know, if you've never responded to Jesus, because God is calling us back to Him, it takes, there's a part that we have to play. We have to bow our knee, acknowledge that God, yes, I have rebelled against you. I am not living for you in the way that I should be. And I want to come back to you. And so time's going to lead us around a time of communion in a moment. And I want you to be thinking about this right now. Do I know God? Yes, He's there, generally speaking. Yes, I benefit from His presence in my life every day. Yes, I benefit from His supply and His sustaining and all those things. He's there. But is He here, there? Because if He's not, you'll be on the wrong side of Him when He does come back. But if He is, you'll be able to rejoice and all of your problems from that moment on will be over forevermore. Not yet, but when He comes back, There's still going to be troubles. There's going to be stuff in this world. Can I pray? Father, I just pray that your word would go deep and it would stir us to action in Jesus' name. This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. God bless.